Welcome back to Gray Area. My name is Alex, and today we have Marie Nix. How are you today? Hey, I'm so great. Thank you for having me. Oh, thanks for taking the time out to speak to us. Uh, really excited to talk to you. Um, I always like to start off my interviews by asking, what's your first musical memory? Oh, man, first musical memory. So, I mean, I've been into music, you know, since I was really little. Um, I grew up in a musical family. My grandpa is a pianist. Um, and so as a kid, I used to play piano. Um, and, you know, my sister also was in bands. Um, she's 10 years older than me. So um, I had her as a musician to look up to my whole life. Um, and I just remember her always showing me what she was into back in the day. Um, and I think probably my most memorable um, moment is her taking me to see Radiohead and the Pixies at Coachella 2004. And oh, I was wow. like a small teenager, had no idea what I was in for. Um, I knew Radiohead, but I wasn't, you know, super into them yet. Obviously, after that show, they were my favorite band and still are my favorite band till this day. Um, so yeah, that like, I remember even not wanting to go. And she was like, No, just trust me, like, <laughs> it's gonna change your life. And so we show up and, you know, Coachella wasn't super big back then. Right. Um, but it was still the most people I had ever been around, especially at a live show. Um, and it was just really mind blowing. And it was kind of my first introduction to festival culture and community. Um, I want to ask, like, was there anything else that stood out to you about that weekend that you that you still carry with you? Uh, I just have like, you know, crazy flashbacks of, of like the visuals and um, I had never been to a show at that caliber. So um, just like it blew my mind um, how much they put into building the stage and um, you know, all of the crazy people in the desert. Yeah. Right. <laughs> was, was um, I, I gotta wonder like at what point did you start to get into dance music then because I know you're you get that, that's background in like more traditional music and like rock and you've played instruments um what sparked this love for dance music when did you fall in love with it so um you know in in I was always kind of influenced by a more electronic sound um like I love like 80s dark wave um right you know, like New Order and, and Soft Cell and Tears for Fears. And then in middle school, I got really into The Faint. Um, and, they and you know, bands like them, The Knife, LaRue. Yeah. And so that was kind of my first introduction to electronic sounds. Um, and then in high school, um, I had some friends that started going to EDC um they would go to what was that new year's rave called 
Oh, um, um, together as one. Yeah. Um, so they were really into raves and electronic music and, uh, and I had been to like some dance parties, you know, in Orange County, that's where I grew up. Right. Um, that weren't really massives or anything. Um, and I was interested in the music. I just hadn't been fully immersed yet. Yeah. Um, until I went to my first massive, which was Nocturnal Wonderland. Um, in 2008, I think it was. Yeah. Uh, and back then, you know, of course, I was into like the big room EDM. I was into trance, like above and beyond was my favorite artist. That's um, still pretty awesome. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I actually did go to their show um, in Huntington a few years ago. I forget what it was called. Um, and Juna Beach, I think. Yeah. Uh, so you know, once I went to my first massive rave, the rest was kind of history. Um, and then I kind of, you know, took some steps to get to the underground scene that I'm in now. Right. Um, you know, from massives went uh, me finding Lee Burge's All Day I Dream parties. Um, I would go to Focus, Orange County. Um, they did 18 plus uh, house music nights. Yeah. That was kind of like my first taste into a more underground scene. Right. Uh, and then I went to uh, Lightning in a Bottle because of Lee Burridge's All Day I Dream Parties. Yeah. I fell in love with his music, um, fell in love with what he was doing, you know, what vibe he was curating. Um, and so it kind of sparked my interest in going to LIB. Um, then from LIB, I found Desert Hearts. And uh, I found them through a mutual friend uh, that I actually met at Coachella. Um, oh, interesting. Yeah, we, we had the same friend group. And uh, we really connected one night during an arc fire set. Um, and so... We, she uh, she brought me on to some of the smaller festivals and Desert Hearts was one of them. Um, and that was, you know, the beginning days of Desert Hearts before they grew into what they are now. And right. um, that was kind of uh, being really involved in that community was kind of what sparked uh, my interest in DJing and becoming an artist myself. So... I want to like kind of trace that back because you talked about going to a massive for your first time. And then I feel like it's a natural progression for everybody at some point to be like, okay, I've been exposed to this and I want to dive down the rabbit hole. Yeah. And you ended up at all of these like more underground parties and kind of like the subculture of the subculture. Yeah. Um, what is it about the underground that is appealing to you more so than, than mainstream events? Uh, so the mainstream events, um, I feel are a little overwhelming for me. Mm. Um, just like the amount of people, um, you know, being in that crowd, I feel like there's a lot of people from a lot of different walks of life as well. And a lot of different perspectives, right. um, the underground, um, in the like very sub 
cultures of the underground. There's a lot of very like-minded people. Yeah. Um, and, you know, you can form your own specially curated community um, off just, you know, the brand that you've created more so in the underground rather than it being just so all over the place in the massive. Absolutely. Would you say when you went to Desert Hearts, you kind of found your tribe? Yes, definitely. And um, you've continued to have a relationship with them, yeah? Yeah. Um, over the pandemic, I did um, some takeovers on their Twitch channel. Um, so I was able to book some of the artists. Um, I played a few other takeovers on their channel. And then uh, Evan and Marbs had me over at their house to play. Um on my birthday just to celebrate that so That's super cool yeah i did keep in touch with them um you know some of some of the people in the community are dear dear friends of mine so um i don't feel like those connections will ever dissolve um what is it about la specifically in la's underground scene that makes it so unique for you <sighs> Uh, I mean, the LA underground just kind of seems like one big family. Mm. Um, a lot of people that I've connected with, you know, have always been super, super supportive. Um, and I think the relationships I've built, built have been really special in the LA underground. Yeah. Um, like, you know, I I was going to different parties before I was even a DJ. Right. So I feel like my connections were a little more organic than an artist coming in and right. being like, you know, hey, I want to be your friend. You're a promoter. It so, wasn't, there's no, there were no transactional relationships for you. Yeah, it was more, uh, you know, genuine. Like I was going to support their parties, like Temple Tuesdays, Clinic Wednesdays, just to name like a couple of my favorite. Um, I was friends with Ray who throws Temple, friends with Surreal that throws Clinic before I yeah. became honest. And so it was like, as soon as everyone found out that I was starting to DJ and, you know, dive into that, they were all ready and willing to put me on their lineups and um always you know ready to be supportive like ray was the first person in la to book me well let's talk about that like transition from being a fan into a dj and then from being a dj into a producer because you already have a background in music so first what the hell took you so long i know that's <laughs> what i was asking myself um i mean with with music you know I never really stuck to an instrument, mm. um, whether it was piano when I was young. Yeah, I played, but I did not continue to practice until now. And right. then well, I know, you know, a little bit of theory and like a little bit of the basics, but I never really kept on it. Um, and same with guitar. I, I played guitar for a bit. Um, I never really felt like it was the instrument for me. Yeah. Um, and I also sang a little growing up. Um, but I, 
I always knew I wanted to perform in some aspect and make music in some way. Um, I would get together with all my neighborhood kids and we each had a different instrument and we'd try to have a band practice. <laughs> um, <laughs> but none of us were like seasoned enough in the instruments to form a real band. Right. Um, and so I kind of just, uh, you know, dove into uh, discovering music and being a festival goer and just enjoying the music and the community that all of that brought to me. Um, and then it wasn't until, you know, I saw some of the lineups at some of these festivals and I was like, man, there's not really any women on any of these. Um, and like, I saw, you know, the Desert Hearts guys, I saw them come, you know, I saw them rise, um, and build their brand like that. And, yeah. uh, actually Tara Brooks, seeing her and seeing her as one of the only females on all these lineups yeah, and seeing that, you know, she was, you know, in my friend group, basically. Yeah inspired me to be like hey I can probably do this as well um and from that point like I always wanted to change the industry and bring more females into the mix of things um including myself and yeah. so a lot of the connections I had made were DJs before I started DJing um and so I would be at their houses all the time. I'd be at after parties and someone would always be on the decks. Um, and I was kind of one of those iPod USB or iPod DJs. Yeah. Before that, like I knew all the tracks. I knew what was coming out. I knew all the labels. But so I you liked, already had an ear for it. Yeah. I always had an ear for it. And I was always the person that like, people wanted to be in charge of the music in like a road trip or yeah. what. And so I was like, maybe I should just DJ. And so I would hop on the decks at these parties and um, a couple friends would be like, Hey, you're actually pretty good at this. <laughs> Let's have you practice a little more and like get you out there. Um, and so that was, the start of it all um some one of one of two of, no two of the main people um my friend Aaron Jacobs um he's also an amazing producer yeah. and he owns a label um I was really close with him when I was first starting out and uh he would have me come over and practice on his decks and uh you know just give me positive feedback like oh yeah that was a great mix maybe try doing this um and then also my friend ali he had he had some uh decks that were not pioneer decks um and they were pretty old you know the bpm uh fader or tempo fader did not really read what was that's, the actual that's BPM. how you learn yeah <laughs> that's um, how you learn yeah. And so I was kind of thrown on those at his place and, um, you know, learning on decks like that, I think 
made me a better DJ from the start because I wasn't learning on like the Nexus twos that basically do most of the work for you. Right. I'm fully in the camp that I don't, technology is great, but as a learning tool, you should learn on the shittiest equipment possible. Exactly. Um, otherwise you can't pivot if something goes wrong while you're actually on stage. Cause you know, sync buttons don't work all the time and BPM counters do weird things and yeah. equipment fails massively. So learning I, on shitty equipment's an advantage. I just had a gig on Friday night and I'm so grateful I learned on this equipment and not have not only just played on, you know, the industry standard cause it was CDJ 2000s that like, they don't have the, um, the zoom in on the waveform function. Right. And there's no, uh, there's no like clock at the top. Oh, that's right. And so you actually have to like, you know, find the kick in your ear and then actually, you know, mix the track in rather than like, oh, you can count, you know, count and on the one you just hit play. Right. I love that. I love that. I love that you've been, you know, you had the advantage of learning learning the right way, even in the digital age. Um, you know, I'm a little bit older than you. Um, and we had no choice. Um, yeah. so I always am comforted to hear when people like continue to learn the correct, like, I'm not going to say the correct way. I mean, it doesn't really matter. Whatever comes out of the speakers is all that matters, but knowing how to like match a beat properly without, with just your ears, it's really yeah. just valuable tool to have. For sure. Um, so how did you make the transition from DJ to producer? Um, so after DJing for a couple years, uh, I just kind of thought like, what are the next steps? I need to learn how to produce. Um, and so back in the day, well, a couple, not back in the day, I say that like it was years ago, uh, <laughs> but a couple of years ago, I, got a Machina Micro, um, it's a Native Instruments, yeah. uh, you know, piece of gear. And um, I started kind of learning Machina, but I didn't have a DAW like um, like Logic or Ableton or Pro Tools because Machina is usually just used as like a VST. Right. Um, but I kind of got the basics down by practicing uh, on the micro and practicing a machina. Um, and then finally I got Ableton a few months later and it's definitely rough to learn on your own. Yeah, Um, it is. And, you know, I had, I just had the machina micro and, um, a little MIDI keyboard. Um, and I didn't really know what I was doing for a while, but nobody you know, does. Yeah, it was <laughs> just watching a bunch of YouTube videos. Um, I did some classes. They were just like Ableton Basics um, yeah. website I found, um, and then I started working with just kind of sitting in on the studio in the studio sesh with other producers. Yeah. Um, and that's how I learned best is by people showing me how to do things that I can actually sit and do myself while they're right. showing. 
100%. Uh, um, how long do you think it took before you were able to write anything decent? Uh, probably two years, at least. Nice. That's uh, not so bad. It's okay. Yeah, it wasn't too bad. Like I, I learned things pretty quickly, lucky, luckily for me. Yeah. Um, and then over the pandemic, um, I took at least five or six classes on IO Music Academy. Yeah. Um, a bunch of live stream classes. So um, I think the one that helped me most was Rinzen's class. Um, that guy's so good. Yeah. So he went through his whole process of um, creating a track from start to finish, even down to the mix down process. Yeah. Um, and so it was really helpful to watch an established producer and their process. Um, and it was fun to see how different every single person does things in Ableton. Like there's so many ways to create a specific sound or. I think that's one of the best things about production in general is that there's like there's there's rules i guess in terms of like how you should eq things and there's like there's like hard and fast rules about like sound yeah. but there are no hard and fast rules about how to achieve the sound like exactly everybody figures it out on their own and some people do a lot like there's a lot of like weird little quirks that people do and i'm like hey i never would have thought to do it that way maybe exactly. it's harder than what i'm doing or maybe it's easier but that doesn't matter because everybody ends up at the same place in the end exactly yeah um so yeah, that really helped. Um, and, you know, I actually had the time to sit down and produce because yeah. I was playing gigs and I wasn't going out to network. Um, I just, every night I would try to get on and do at least an hour of learning in Ableton and um, that pretty much got me to where I am. Um, I, I want to give a shout out to Mod Boss, my partner and label partner. Yeah. He has been a tremendous help in my production. Um, you know, she helped a lot in motivating me to finish this EP. She engineered some of the stuff um, where like, you know, she'd be sitting here there's a funny picture. I'm probably going to post it at some point where uh, she's got hair dye in her hair and she's like recording what I'm playing on the matriarch back here <laughs> into, uh, into Ableton. And she's just helped a lot in um, teaching me different techniques and, you know, giving feedback and constructive criticism to make my work better. How valuable is it to have a mentor like that? Oh, it's amazing. Um, like, you know, before her and I really connected to the point of where we're at now, she was a musician I looked up to. And yeah. So having her as my partner and my label owner, co-label owner, it's really incredible. And it's helped me a lot. And, you know, it inspires me to keep producing having her around because I see how great of a producer she is and I see how easy it is for her to just sit and knock a track out right. and like I see how great she is at sound design and I want to be at that level 
someday. Well, I'm sure that day is not too, is, is closer than you think it is. Yeah, I hope so. Um, so I want to talk about how, I hate to say that the pandemic was good for people, um, mm -hmm. but there are, there were a lot of positives to it for people who were able to kind of buckle down and like focus on the things that they wanted to do. Um, can you talk a little bit about like how you feel like you, there were advantages for you during the pandemic? Yeah. Um, so I, you know, obviously I couldn't play gigs or anything and I was a little discouraged at first, um, because I had some really good things lined up for the year. Um, like for example, I was on the reform lineup and that got canceled. Yeah. You know, I got I got booked to play with Pleasure Craft anyway, who was the headliner back then. Yeah. Uh, so I, I got that makeup gig, um, but I was planning on traveling to other cities and stuff this year. Um, but as soon as everything shut down and like I kind of let go of that discouragement, I realized I needed to start doing something for my music career that would benefit me. Um, so that's when I started looking into the classes. Um, I started getting more into production. I got better studio monitors. Um, I, you know, figured out how to set up the uh, Moog Sub 37 and R8 and, you know, all the gear that I had bought that I never really learned. Right. Um, and... Uh, then I, the first half of the pandemic was more production focused. Yeah. Um, and then I started noticing a bunch of people getting on Twitch, um, starting with that one Beatport stream that was at the very beginning of the pandemic. Um, and then Desert Hearts got on the stream. Um, I started you know, becoming part of the whole Desert Hearts stream community. Yeah. Um, like they used to have Zooms set up all the time. And so you can be on Zoom while the while you're watching the live stream on the TV and you just, you know, dance with all the people that are also on Zoom. Uh, so it. that was pretty amazing. Uh, and then I uh, got booked with uh, Mary Droppins and my friend Elida. She runs a channel called Deck Record. Um, and we played on Desert Hearts TV one night in June. Uh, then from there, since we had such a successful night on Twitch, um, I think that night we had about 13K that we're watching. Wow, that's huge. Yeah. Uh, we decided to take that same group of women and play on Elida's channel deck record because she had already started her Twitch channel. Right. Um, so we built a bit of a following off that channel. Um, Elida is amazing. She was on it, you know, having monthly showcases with all yeah. of us. Um, she was on Twitch, you know, building the community by going on other people's channels. Um, and so then I got really into the whole live stream game from there. And 
I started my own channel. Um, I found a community from the Desert Hearts Zoom um, who is super supportive on Twitch. Um, people from all around the world. I'm still in touch with a bunch of them. Um, and now, you know, they're always coming out and supporting my in-person gigs if they're in town. And so that was really special. And that's kind of what kept me going on Twitch um, is like engaging with that community. Yeah. And um, I started a couple shows. I started one called Nick's at Night. And it was more of like, um, like a dark, I'd play anything from like, dark ambient to um like some dark wave even yeah some industrial just anything any kind of like darker genre of music so you really um, got a chance to do stuff that you normally couldn't do like at a live gig before yeah yeah like some uh ebm like some goth music even uh Very nice. so that night was was one of my favorites I had on Twitch and just the name was a playoff Nick at night. Yeah. But it was like, like a goth version of it being Nick's at night. <laughs> um, <laughs> and then I also started a show called Nixology. Um, I was a bar. Talk about that. That's like a, such an interesting concept um, that I just love so much. Yeah. So, um, it was a show um, that kind of put both my mixology and my DJ um, knowledge together. And uh, I was a bartender for, I think, three or four years um, at the Standard in downtown LA. Yeah. And so I learned how to make a bunch of unique cocktails there, um, learned a lot about you know, what flavor palettes go together. And I really enjoyed it. Um, there's, you know, some sort of creativity behind creating a cocktail list. Yeah. That it's kind of like cooking, you know, um, it's a creative process and you got to know what goes well together. Right. Um, and with everything being shut down, um, people weren't able to go out and order a drink at the bar. And so I kind of wanted to tie that into a show. And every week I would invite a special guest DJ over um, or I would have them remote depending on how they were feeling or if they lived in the same city. Right. And I would have them uh, send me their favorite cocktail and their spirit of choice at the time that I booked them. And so I had a whole spreadsheet going. Um, every time I would book someone, I would take down those two things and then I would create a cocktail based on their favorite flavors. And I would serve it to them when they would come over and play. Um, and then I would also post the drink recipe for my audience so that they had an opportunity to go out and get the ingredients and participate. So they could be part of the, they could be part of the action while they're at home. Yeah, exactly. What an awesome idea to like give all of these DJs their own signature cocktail. 
Yeah, it was a lot of fun. Um, and if, you know, if the DJ didn't drink alcohol, I would make a fun mocktail. Yeah. Um, what were some of yeah. your favorites along the way? Oh, man. Um, I made this one. It was like, oh, man, I can't remember the exact recipe, but I know it was a, it was like a fig and brown sugar whiskey drink. Interesting. Um, yeah, it was kind of like a like a fig and brown sugar old fashioned. Oh, how um, interesting! Yeah, that one was really good. Um, actually, there was rosemary in it as well. Now that I'm remembering this recipe, I remember putting the figs and rosemary with the sugar in a pot of boiling water. Um, that sounds very involved. Yeah, to get that syrup <laughs> going. Um, and then I always love a good mezcal cocktail. So, oh, mezcal is is such a strange flavor. <laughs> it goes really well with uh, with Beef. like watermelon and tahini. And so I I did make um, what did I call it? I don't remember what it was called, but you know the little um, fruit carts that you get. Um, the tahini and the chamoy. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I made a cocktail based off of that. And I think that was my favorite. Um, and the spirit in it was mezcal. Nice. Um, um, yeah, so I, I want to talk about you starting a record label too, since we're, since we're, we're getting to the end. But I really, um, you know, that's just one of the other things that you did during the pandemic. Can you talk a little bit about your record label and like what your goal is uh, with the label? Yeah. Um, so the label was started, um, kind of over the pandemic, sort of toward the end. Yeah. Um, Mod Boss and I, um, we were taught, we had both, you know, mentioned how we wanted to eventually start a record label. Um, and we had a meeting about what our values and stuff were. Um, and so one of the things that we want to do is push underrepresented artists um, and push more analog hardware artists. Nice. And, um, the main goal, you know, is to cultivate a community of um, people that align with our similar values. Um, so we want to, you know, be a really inclusive label. Um, so far, we've released, yeah, now more women um, once my release comes out. Um, the, so, the, yeah, the majority of people we've released are women, and that's one of our main goals. Um, we also, you know, kind of want to bring dance music back to its roots. Dance music is gay. Yeah. Dance music, you know, came from Black culture. Yeah. Um, so being two queer artists ourselves, um, that is also one of the goals we have. I love to hear that, um, especially in a year where we thought the conversation was moving forward. Um, and it may not necessarily seem like it has in a lot of ways. So it's yeah. great to hear that you're out there trying to to continue that work because I think it's really important. Yeah, and it's it's important, you know, to have 
an inclusive space for you know artists to feel like they're being represented at the caliber they should be represented at absolutely like even all of our past artists like we're still pushing them um you know we're always here to promote them and and you know do what we can to support them in any way i love it um we're getting close to the end so i have two more things for you um the first is the last question and the next thing after that would be the speed round that i told you about um so my last question is always the same and it's what excites you about the future of dance music uh oh man um so i mean i think i've been seeing a lot more of um of a diverse culture coming forward um in artistry and dance music and yeah. so that's what i want to see um i want to see more women out there and i want to see you know more people of color out there um i want to see more lgbtqia artists yeah. um, and i am starting to see a little bit of a change in that um so that's really exciting to me um yeah i think that's that's pretty much it awesome thank you well said yeah. um so now we're gonna do the speed rounds uh, you have not been briefed on any of these questions, so we're just no. going to jump right into it. You ready? Should I be scared? Maybe. <laughs> <laughs> All right. First question, dogs or cats? Dogs. Pizza or sandwiches? Pizza. Uh, intimate club or festival? Intimate club. Rave or club? Mm, club. Analog or digital? Analog. Radio or head or cold play? Radiohead. Uh, snow or beach? Ooh, that's tough. Beach. Lake or ocean? Ocean. If you could have one superpower, would you choose flight or invisibility? Flight. All right. Would you rather be chronically underdressed or chronically overdressed? Chronically overdressed. Oh, interesting. <laughs> Drum and bass or trap? Drum and bass. Drum and bass or trance? Drum and bass. <laughs> <laughs> um, pop or hip hop? Pop. Favorite color? Mm, purple. Flip flops or shoes? Shoes. And finish this sentence. Before I die, I want to... travel the world i don't know <laughs> that's good that's like the second fastest anybody's ever answered that because it always stumps people yeah. actually, i actually had somebody on who said go scuba diving and then shortly afterwards said wait i don't want to go scuba diving <laughs> <laughs> nice you understood the assignments thank you yes well thank you so much for taking the time out to speak to us today really appreciate it of course thanks for having me absolutely and we'll be talking soon Definitely. Awesome. Bye. Bye.